Our gracious Heavenly Father, how great You are. How great You are that You have invited us as Your creatures to Your universe so that we would enjoy You and live for Your glory, Father. Thank You that You have made that possible to glorify You here on this earth and the fact that You have sent Your beloved Son, Jesus, into the world to die for sinners such as us. Thank you that by faith in him we have invited, been invited into a relationship with you so that we can sing out of hearts that are just so grateful for the fact that you have loved us in Christ. Father, thank you for your sustaining grace every day. Thank you for the reminder this morning that, Lord, no matter what we do, that your love in Christ Jesus will never change for us or toward us. And Father, we pray this morning that as we open up your word, as we continue to behold your Son on the pages of your Holy Word, that you would impress upon us a greater view of Him so that in response to that we would live for your glory. Father, thank you for the privilege of your Word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. My brother Alex read verses 1 through 13 this morning. We began last week, if you remember, a two-part um, message really on counterfeit Christianity, counterfeit Christianity, and this is part two of that um, that just two part um, series. And I want to look at verses fourteen through twenty three this morning of Mark chapter seven. And if you're able to stand with me, please stand for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter seven, verses fourteen through twenty three. After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, "Listen to me, all of you, and understand." There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him, because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and is eliminated? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, and adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things proceed from within and defile the man. You may be seated. Great passage of Scripture. The question has often been asked, who killed Jesus? Who killed Jesus? And the answer, of course, that the Bible gives us is that ultimately God the Father put His Son Jesus to death on the cross for sinners according to His eternal plan from before the foundation of the world. But from a human perspective, the the Romans certainly had a role to play during Jesus' day. But even more, his Jewish people, his own countrymen, and especially the religious leaders of his day, the religious elite, those who should have known better, didn't know better. They were constantly in conflict with Jesus Christ, the religious leaders were. Constantly hounding him, as we saw last week. They confronted him and had conflict with him over his teaching and over his authority and why he said the things that he said. They had conflicts with him over the Sabbath 
and why he felt like he was prominent over the Sabbath. They had conflicts with him over issues like fasting and many other issues. And what we began to see last week is that now they're going to have conflict with him over their traditions, in particular ceremonial cleansings. And so this conflict, as we began to see last week, between Jesus and the religious leaders provides our Lord with an opportunity to expose the destructive danger of legalism. The destructive danger of legalism. And I told you that in verses 1 through 23, we see this in two primary ways. In verses 1 through 13, and last week we saw that legalism elevates human tradition above God's word. For the people of the day and the religious leaders, they elevated their own man-made traditions. They had created a a fence around God's law consisting of man-made rules, man-made traditions, restrictions, stay away from this, pursue that, eat this, don't eat that, even rituals. And all of these things became markers of spirituality that they came to actually believe that these are the things that made them righteous in the eyes of God and allowed them to even sit in judgment of other people. And we made the point that we need to be so careful in our day and age and in the church that we're not those who go beyond what stands written. Beyond the Word of God to create man-made rules, codes of conduct, our way of doing things, preferences that we impose on other people that are extra-biblical outside of the Bible. We need to be so, so careful not to go beyond what the Word of God says as so many in Jesus' day had gone. And now in verses 14 through 23, we see that through this conflict, Jesus now exposes a legalism that is fixated on externalism to the neglect of the human heart. A legalism that is fixated on externalism to the neglect of the uh, the heart. In other words, our Lord goes even deeper now to address the issue of the true nature of defilement and corruption and where does it come from. You know, if you talk to many people in our culture in today's day and age, they think that the way to change things in the world is by reforming society. By maybe a different party being in, in office now. By being changing government, more protests we need, more societal changes, more structural changes to our government, etc., etc., etc. People think that the way to change the world is by doing all of those things. And then on a personal level, people think that what makes them do evil things are things like their environment, like the world around them, things like their experience, perhaps how they grew up. Perhaps your background, perhaps whether you had a fatherly figure or you don't, or you didn't. Maybe exploitation, that the reason why you are the way you are is because others exploited you. Others did wrong things to you. And so therefore, the evil that you see in your life and the way that you are is due to those types of things, your environment, experiences, others who exploited you, that the reason why you're corrupt, the reason why you sin, the reason why you struggle is because of all of those things outside of yourself. So whether it's big picture or on a personal level, we tend to blame other things outside of ourselves for the corruption that we see in our lives or even in our world. And it is true that certainly our experiences... Our environment, 
um, what other people have done to us throughout the course of our life, um, certainly those things might help explain why you and I are susceptible and vulnerable to particular struggles and sins. Some of our experiences and people having done things to us might exacerbate why we have struggles in particular areas of our lives. But the Bible is very, very clear that defilement and corruption in our lives, beloved, listen, is ultimately the result of human depravity. And by depravity, I mean that each of us, each of us personally, by nature, are sinful and corrupt, that each of us are wicked from within. The Bible doesn't teach that we are made wicked by our environment and other factors outside of us. James puts it this way in verses, James chapter 1, verses 13 and following. He says that we are, each of us are carried away and enticed by our own lust, our own internal evil desire. That's ultimately the origin for our sin. The psalmist put it this way in Psalm 51, verse 5. In sin, my mother conceived me. In sin, my mother conceived me. That is from the moment of conception, says the psalmist, I am a sinner. And then Psalm 58, verse 3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. In other words, the wicked from the womb are alienated from God. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. We are wicked, beloved, from birth. I mean, just think about your own experience, even as a parent, right? Who taught your babies the words mine? Right? Did you disciple them? I want you to, the first word, baby, that I want you to learn is no. Can you learn that? Can you say that for daddy? How many of you did that? Not me. No, I want mine. We didn't teach our children those words. As soon as they're able to talk, those are like the first words, right? It's mine. That's mine. No. Human depravity at work. Back in college, I had a Christian friend uh, who was blind from birth. And one time in, a, in the process of a, just a small group on a Friday night, I asked him about his personal struggles, and he was asking me. And you know what he confessed? As a blind young man from birth, he asked for prayer um, in light, because he struggled with lust tremendously. And it just floored me. I thought, how in the world does a person who cannot see, because for, for men, so much of it is the things that you can see, right? That lead to the struggles of the heart. How is it that somebody who can't see from birth can actually struggle in their heart with lust, with evil sexual desire? And the answer, of course, that he gave me is, I am depraved from the heart. You see, we, are, we sin because we are by nature sinners. It's who we are. It's our identity from the moment of conception. Human depravity is a reality in our lives from the moment that we are born. Our hearts are wicked. And this is what our Lord teaches us here in this particular passage. The reality of human depravity. And if you're taking notes, in verses 14 through 16, we want to see that he introduces the principle of human depravity, the principle of human depravity. And in verses 17 through 23, he explains the source of human depravity, the source of human depravity. And as we walk through this passage, I want you to ask yourself this question. Have I succumbed to a type of legalism 
where I actually think that what I do on the outside makes me right with God, regardless of whether I deal with my heart or not? Am I about just focusing on the externals, going through the motions, all the while I know before the Lord that my heart is far from Him, such as the religious leaders that Jesus exposes in the first 13 verses? And then ask yourself this question. Have I succumbed to a type of legalism where all I do is focused on externalism without addressing the issues of my heart and in the lives of others, extended to how you relate to others in the church? Do you judge other people in the church just based upon what you see, or do you take it a step further to really relate to them on a deeper level so that you actually find out what's going on in their hearts to be able to come alongside of them effectively? So think about that personally, and think about that in the way that you relate to other people around you. Ask yourself these things. First, our Lord teaches on the principle of human depravity here in verses 14 through 16. Our Lord is the ultimate shepherd. He has addressed himself in the opening 13 verses of this passage to the religious leaders, calling them out on their hypocritical legalism. And now our Lord urgently summons the crowds. Notice in verse 14 with me. After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. Think of our Lord Jesus with with passion. Pay attention, in other words. This is is said with a sense of urgency. Listen to us so as to appropriate what I'm about to say, crowds, multitudes. And here's the obvious principle stated in verse 15. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him, that is, corrupt him, if it goes into him, But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. Jesus is not saying here that externals are not important. What he's going to expose is the fact that it's not about externalism, right? That there's something deeper going on when we see evil around us or in our own personal lives. And he's going to expand on this principle in a bit. But if you have a New American Standard Version or the New King James Version translation, then you will notice that you have a verse 16 there, right? In brackets, with a marginal note that tells you that verse 16 is not contained in the best available manuscripts. They include it anyway for you to at least know that it appears in some manuscripts. Most believe that that was a scribal addition. It doesn't really make much of a difference. Our Lord back in Mark chapter 4 verse 9 essentially calls their attention in the same way. He who has ears to hear, listen. So in either case, we understand the urgency of what Christ is saying here, whether this is to be included or it isn't to be included. Now, the principle of human depravity here is what Jesus presents. That's what he wants them to understand. Jesus is saying, it's not about those things that you're focusing on. It's not about physical things in and of themselves as the ultimate source of corruption or defilement. It's not about those external things. Now listen, it's hard for us to grasp the significance of what Jesus is talking about here, this principle that Jesus states here. But you need to transport yourself again into the world of that day, of Jesus' day. Because remember that these people, for these people, ceremonial washings, dietary restrictions, the observance of certain feasts and festivals were observed first and foremost because the law of Moses prescribed many of these things. 
In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 14, we are given instructions about what is clean or unclean for the Israelite to partake or refrain from. So that was, that was a focus because of the law first and foremost. But as we've seen, though the law was good and righteous and holy, and, and it, was, it was something that God had given them for the purpose of their health and a way that they could glorify Him and ultimately point to their, to their need for internal cleansing, the religious leaders and the traditions over the years had added some 600 plus additional laws to what was to be kept by the common Jew. Some 365 negative instructions. Some 240 positive instructions. And in addition, a fence around the law so that people didn't even come close to violating the law of Moses. That was their culture. A fixation on externalism, if you will. And so, for the common Jewish person, especially those religious leaders... They actually came to believe that observing these external things earned them righteousness before God. Judaism had become primarily a heartless, cold, and callous religion of works. And even Paul, writing some 30 years after his conversion of Acts chapter 9, when he writes the letter of Philippians from jail... He actually wrote to describe himself as a Pharisee who prided himself in Philippians 3 as being being righteous because of his religious pedigree, because of his external works, because of who he was as a Pharisee of Pharisees. He prided himself in those things, in the the keeping of, of the law. He actually came to believe the Apostle Paul that he was righteous in the eyes of God because of this external religion of works. He was the cream of the crop. The best of the best, the Apostle Paul. But he had a collision with Jesus Christ, didn't he? In Acts chapter 9. And you know what he says in Philippians chapter 3? He says, whatever things were gained to me, all of those religious accolades that I could boast in and pride myself in, he says, whatever things were, were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ, for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He says, I count those things as rubbish, as dung, as human excrement. He says, in light of the glory of knowing Jesus Christ, he says, and the righteousness that comes to me apart from the law through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how Paul described his own conversion. This is why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, I say to you, to the multitudes he was preaching, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. See, in those days there was self-righteousness, the belief that you can be accepted by God based upon your performance, and then there was the righteousness that Christ offered and offers today to each of us by faith, right? The righteousness of Christ. Now, in case we think ourselves better, Please remember, as I told you last week, these individuals were people who claimed to be worshipers of the true God. They were actually zealous for the law, for the the keeping, the strict, rigid observance of the law. And they wanted other people to keep the law as well. That's why the whole fence had been created. So that they didn't even, people didn't even come close to breaking the law of God. They were absolutely zealous, beloved. But listen, they were heartless in their worship. Their hearts weren't there for the Lord. 
They had come to believe that their externalism was what justified them in the eyes of God. You know what they had lost sight of? The fact that God wants duty out of delight in Him and love for Him. Delight leads to duty. That's what God has always wanted. First and foremost, it's about the matter of the heart. Scripture is so clear about what God delights in. Listen to Psalm 51 and verse 16. For you, God, do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. Listen to this. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. See, even the sacrifices weren't the point. The sacrifices in the Old Testament were merely meant to illustrate the holiness of God and the need for an ultimate sacrifice fulfilled in who? In Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ. But God, it was always about the heart for the Lord. Psalm 40 and verse 6, blood sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. Listen to this. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Why do I obey, Lord? Because my heart delights in you. Isn't that why we do things for our spouses? We don't, you don't take your wife out on a date, and then the first thing that comes out of your mouth, I am so glad that I have to do this. How, does, how would your spouse respond? You'd be on a date on your own, right? <laughs> what about your kid when you take your little daughter out on a daddy-daughter date? What does your little girl or your son want to hear from you? Man, I, I often have told my kids, I love the fact that we're together. I am so happy to be here with you no matter what we do. On a human level, don't we want to know that people delight in being with us? Nobody wants you to be with them because it's burdensome or drudgery because you have to. They want you to be with them because you want to, right? You delight in them. How much more, beloved, with the Lord? He wants us to delight in Him and to obey Him because we love Him. Second Chronicles chapter 34, verse 27. This is what is, is said of King Josiah who led a mini-reformation during his day. God tells him this, Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before me, tore your clothes and wept before me, I truly have heard you, declares the Lord. See, For God, Josiah's heart was the main thing. He had responded in obedience because of the fact that he had cherished and treasured God in his heart and his word. That's what God has always wanted, beloved. For God, it isn't about externally keeping rules, doing rituals, following man-made traditions. It's about worshiping and loving Him from the heart. In fact, isn't that how Jesus put it in in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 31? Somebody asked Him, what are the, can you sum up, what is the greatest commandment of all? What did He say? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself, right? Love for God, love for your neighbor. Love is what God wants from each and every one of us. Can I just ask you this morning, if you are a Christian, is loving God what Christianity is all about for you? And your obedience 
flows from a delight and devotion to him because of all that he has done, especially putting his son on the cross to die for your sins. Do you respond in obedience to him because you love him, because you delight in him, because you are devoted to him because of what he's done? Is that what Christianity is about for you, Christian, this morning? You know, so many Christians are malnutrition, spiritually speaking. And they're malnutrition, spiritually speaking, because they've diminished what being a Christian is to a set of do's and don'ts. Do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. That's all that Christianity is about for them. Rules, rules, rules. Keep this, don't keep that. This is the measure of a spiritual person, the person who, who does all of these seven or eight steps, right? And who refrains from these other things. And that's all that Christianity is about. Where is the heart of devotion? Where is the heart of delight that drives and fuels duty and obedience, beloved? So many of us just want practical messages. The five ways to keep a good marriage. The eight ways to make sure that I am happy. The ten steps to make sure that my kids turn out well. We want practical message, practical message. Give me the steps, give me the ways, give me the rules, give me this, give me that. What about a heart for God? And out of that then flow all of those other things. That's what God wants in his word, doesn't he? Delight drives, fuels duty and responsibility, not the other way around. You say, well, are you saying that obedience isn't important? I'm not saying that. The legalist thinks like that all of a sudden. Are you saying that obedience and rules in and of themselves are wrong? Absolutely not. I'm saying that one drives and fuels the other. Am I making myself clear? It's not that commands to obey are bad. That commands to obey are evil. But listen to me. All of the commands of Scripture, beloved, are application and implications of who we are in Christ, of delighting and beholding and worshiping Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. A high view of Jesus and the good news of the gospel fuels obedience from the heart. Leads to long-term obedience, sincere and genuine worship. We need to behold Christ on the pages of His Word so that we would respond with what I call loving obedience, grateful obedience in light of His grace. Amen? That's what our Lord was all about preaching during His ministry. But most in His day had lost sight of this. It was all about externalistic religion. That's all it was about. And so the principle that Jesus teaches here is moral defilement, corruption, etc. is not the result of mere externalism. And so the question that we should ask is, where does evil, corruption, defilement then come from? Again, some people think that the primary source of our problem is, is bad government, a lack of education, exploitation of one people groups over the other, bad experiences, a bad environment, on and on the list goes. That if we change these things, all will get better, evil will be extinguished, right? Or that it's other people who personally have done evil to us, and therefore that is why we have been led to sin. Well, what does our Lord tell us, the sovereign Lord, about the source, secondly, of human depravity? The source of human depravity in verses 17 through 23. Here Jesus restates his principle. But now specifically notice to his disciples in verse 17. Whom he's training. Remember after his ascension they're going to take over right? 
preaching the gospel. Look at verse 17. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. Verse 18. And Jesus said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? To use contemporary language, you guys are so hard-headed. Don't you get it? Don't you get it? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach? So Jesus repeats the principle. And then in an effort to to hammer home the principle of human depravity, he gets very specific to talk about food and the digestive process, if you will. Remember, they thought ceremonial cleansings, what they ate or didn't eat, was what morally corrupted them. And so Jesus uses a simple example, an obvious one, right? Pretty simple. This is basic knowledge. What happens to food that is processed? Food goes in through your mouth, into your stomach, your small intestine, then to your larger one, and then what takes place? The good stuff is distributed throughout your body, and then what happens to the bad stuff? It exits, right? And we'll leave it there. Not going to get any, no further description, okay? This is what Jesus means at the end of verse 18. The waste is eliminated, eliminated. We know what he means by that. And so his point is this. Again, in and of itself, food does not morally corrupt a person. Now notice this. Mark, looking back in retrospect, draws an implication for us from our Lord's words in verse 19. Thus, he declared all foods clean. What's that all about? Remember, in Deuteronomy 14, we have instructions about clean and unclean foods. And so Jesus is now authoritatively declaring that all foods are clean. And the question that we should ask is, what gives Jesus the right, essentially, to declare all foods clean? What right does he have? He's done something similar before, hasn't he? Remember back in Mark chapter 2? where the religious leaders were picking a fight with Jesus about his disciples breaking the Sabbath because they were hungry and they were working from their perspective by by picking the grain and eating it. And Jesus there in Mark chapter 2 appeals to Scripture and then he says this to them in Mark chapter 2 verse 28. For the Son of Man is what? Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, Jesus' answer to them is, listen to me, Scripture... They're not in violation of Scripture, one. Two, I am greater than the Sabbath. I am Lord of the Sabbath. If anyone has a, has a, has a, um, has a claim on making definitive stances on with the significance of the Sabbath, it is me, the Lord of the Sabbath. I created it for man's benefit. I'm here. Everything in the Old Testament ultimately pointed to Jesus Christ, you see. Wherever Jesus is present in Mark, his word is final. So here, verse 19, thus he declared all foods clean. What an understatement because it was huge what was taking place here, right? The early church even later on struggled with this. How could it be? How could it be? How does the Old Testament law still apply to the New Testament, New Covenant believer? And they could point back to this and say, Christ himself Declared all foods clean. Even the Pharisees understood what Jesus was saying here. 
So much so that in the parallel account of Matthew 15, 12, it says that the Pharisees were offended when they heard Jesus say this. In other words, they, they stumbled over what Jesus said. Who does this guy think, think he is? I'm sure the religious leaders thought. And Mark's answer again and again and again, isn't it, beloved? The reason why Jesus can be making um, statements like this is because he is the God-man unrivaled in power and authority over all things. He's God. He can do this. Thus, he declared all foods clean. And so moral defilement, says our Lord, doesn't come from externals. Now, in case there's any confusion about what he's talking about, notice verse 20. What is, this, what is the source of human depravity then? Verse 20, he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men proceed, and then he gives a list of vices there. In other words, you want to know, says Jesus, what the source of corruption and defilement is? Look within. It is your corrupt evil heart the problem of evil of human defilement and corruption runs much much deeper was the lord's message to them it is for us today right see these legalists had a faulty diminished view of the seriousness of the problem right this is why they put so much stock on externalism and they actually believed that they were okay before the lord doing the outside things without dealing with their own hearts that those rules and those rituals, etc., made them righteous before God. Jesus says to them and to us, no. No, no, no. Your problem is much deeper, more profound, more serious, more hideous, more helpless, and more hopeless than you can even begin to know. Out of the heart proceed wickedness. It's not the outside that you need to be concerned about. It's first and foremost your heart. Not your physical organ, your heart, right? Not that. The seat of your of a the heart is the seat of a person's thoughts, motives, attitudes, leading to actions and to words. You might say that the heart is the real you. The real you. It matters very little what you show on the outside if you're walking in hypocrisy in your heart, right? It's the real you. It's the central control system of your life. That's why in Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23, we're told to watch over your heart with all diligence for from it, from your heart, flow the springs of life. Everything comes from your heart, right? The seat of a person's thoughts, motives, actions, attitudes, and words. It's the real you. I think oftentimes when we hear the statement, you know, our hearts are sinful, our hearts are sinful. I think we, we don't really understand and grasp the gravity of what we mean by that, right? So notice what our Lord does. He could have ended in verse 20, and they would have gotten his point, right? His general point, that human depravity flows from within, from the heart. But notice he expands in verse 21, doesn't he? On the gravity of that problem, of the heart Verse 21, for from within, out of the heart, he says, proceed the evil thoughts. Literally, the thoughts, the evil ones. Those things that you reason, that you contemplate, that you think about. Those things, Jesus says, that's where it all begins. The starting point is your meditations internally. So if you want to change the outside, where do you begin? The things that you think about, right? That's why Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, 
That we need to be transformed how? By the renewing of our what? Minds. Our thinking needs to change. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let it make its home in your heart. How does that happen? By you reading, meditating, memorizing scripture so that you're thinking Jesus' thoughts after him, right? That's where it all begins. Proverbs 23, verse 7. As a man thinks within himself, so he is. Tell me what, you, what consumes or occupies your mind on a daily basis. I'll tell you what kind of a person you are, right? And vice versa. That's where it begins. Then he says fornications. The word is porneia. A broad term including all forms of sexual immorality. Including what kinds of things in scripture? Sinful, lustful thoughts of the mind. Sexual encounters with somebody not your spouse. Sexual encounters with, with people who you're not in a committed relationship of marriage with. Soft and hard pornography on the internet or on your device. That is sexual immorality. The ongoing practice of giving into homosexuality or same-sex attraction. Bestiality, pedophilia. The word is all-encompassing denoting any perversion or twisting of God's beautiful and precious gift of sex, which is to be enjoyed in the context of a loving marriage between one man and one woman. Hornea. Jesus says that comes from the heart. Thefts would include stealing of any kind, dishonest gain, cheating for personal gain, murders. He says adulteries. Adultery refers to unlawful sexual acts by a married person. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4 says that marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. God will judge. And I want to remind us there is forgiveness at the foot of the cross for every single sin, right? But you must repent. You must turn, turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ that he would forgive you even of these things. Then he says deeds of coveting and wickedness. These refer to unloving, hateful acts flowing from a heart that is, that is greedy, which craves what doesn't belong to you. Oftentimes these appear in the context of sexual lust. They could refer to the desire for forbidden sexual pleasure with somebody who doesn't belong to you. Wickednesses, plural, wickednesses, refers to a spirit of maliciousness of evil-mindedness that expresses itself in hateful wrongdoing toward other people, as well as deceit. Dallas has the idea of a lure or a bait by which you trick someone for personal gain or personal advantage. Deceit here, Dallas, refers to acting cunningly, being a trickster kind of a person, to acting in a malicious and calculated way so that you get Again, advantage over people. Deceit is so broad, isn't it? You can deceive by lying, saying things that are not true, but also by withholding the truth. You know that, that statement, what they don't know won't hurt them, right? That's a form of deceit. That's a form of deceit. It also refers to deceiving by exaggeration, misrepresentation, for the purpose of making oneself look better. Proverbs 6.19 refers to this person as a false witness who utters lies. A false witness who utters lies. And he says sensuality. 
unrestrained licentiousness. The person who is sensual is the person who is unruly, lawless, and rejects all moral standards in God's word. It refers to a lack of decency, a lack of shame in your actions from the heart. Envy. Literally an evil eye. It's a Hebrew expression referring to a jealous or grudging attitude towards someone or towards someone's possessions. You're envious of what you do not have. Slander, literally blasphemia, blasphemy. could be speech against God or speech that is meant to injure someone's character or name for personal gain or personal advantage. Slander. Pride or arrogance. It means to think of or show oneself above others it refers to the the person who is arrogant who is haughty to the person who has an inflated swollen opinion of him or herself this kind of pride or arrogance might show itself in the fact that we oftentimes get defensive have a defensive spirit towards others who want to encourage us right a lack of humility or teachability and then he says foolishness foolishness folly In the context of ethics here, it refers to one who lacks moral sensitivity, who lacks sense internally and externally. The Edmund Hebert writes this quote, Standing at the end of the list, foolishness pictures the character of the fool, one who does not know God and has no desire to serve him, end quote. Listen, the list is not exhaustive, right? Maybe, we don't know. But maybe Jesus expanded on this. We don't know. We get this list encapsulated here as a sampling of what is going on in our depraved hearts. Often we don't want to talk about these kinds of things. We don't want to unpack words like this. We love hearing about the saving work of Christ, but we don't want to talk about sanctification, right? Becoming more and more like Jesus so that we reject things like these in the light of who we are in Jesus Christ. But beloved, if we don't understand how sinful we are and the sin that Christ died for on the cross to pay for these types of sins and other sins like moralism and self-righteousness and legalism and trusting in ourselves, those are respectable sins, right? Jesus died to pay for those sins. Unless we understand the seriousness of our depraved condition, we won't understand and grasp the beauty and the treasured reality of God loving each and every one of us in Christ. Jesus again then says, look in verse 23, all these evil things proceed from within, that is from the heart, and defile the man or the person. And Jesus is trying to make a point here. Look within. Stop focusing on those externals. Look at what's going on within your heart. Can you imagine? I can only imagine the apostles looking back at this right here, what Jesus says about the nature of the problem of the depravity of the human heart later on after he has ascended and them remembering the reason why we need to preach the gospel, the good news concerning Christ who came to live a perfect life, to die for sinners on the cross is because of this type of human problem, this condition. The heart is depraved. This is why, beloved, we need to preach the gospel. Amen? This is why we need to tell people about Jesus, who is God, and what he did, so that they would know that there's a, there's a Savior who can deliver them from enslavement to their sin and from the punishment that their sin deserves. This is why we need to preach the good news of the person and the work of Christ. 
Because this is the condition of every single person's heart, you understand. The Edmund Hebert comments again, quote, Jesus released his followers from the fear of defilement from things coming to them from without, but uncovered a vastly more serious defilement springing out of men's own nature, end quote. This is why Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked or sick. Who can understand it? And then later on it says, I, the Lord, test the heart. Only God is able to solve the problem of the, of the depravity of the human heart. Please don't leave without recognizing this. The problem that each of us have and the, and the, the amazing love of God in Christ Jesus on the cross solved a deeper, more profound problem than simply external things. We are sinners from within. We are depraved. The outside is important, beloved, but only as it's an accurate reflection of a heart for God that worships God and loves God and is devoted to God. But the legalist only lives for what people can see on the outside and only lives to judge people based upon what they can see on the outside rather than getting to know people and what's going on in the heart so that they can help address their issue with solutions that are, that are fitting and relational and biblically driven, Right? The condition of our hearts is what God cares about. Remember 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7? For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the what? At the heart. At the heart. Listen, this is why if you are not a Christian this morning, the answer to your depravity, to the fact that you are a sinner, is not try harder. Do better. Do gooder. I know that that's not a word, but do gooder. The answer is not go to church more. Do more good works. Modify your behavior on the outside. Listen to me. You cannot measure up to God's perfect standard of holiness. You cannot do it. You need a righteousness outside of yourself, an alien righteousness outside of yourself. And that righteousness is the righteousness of Christ. His perfect life, his atoning death, by which he sufficiently paid for your sins if you will trust in him alone, not yourself. That's what you need this morning. You need a new heart. You need a regenerate heart. You need to be born again from within. Again, you don't change yourself so that you can come to Christ. You come to Christ as you are, recognizing your sin so that he begins a process of changing you, right? And for those of us who are Christians, listen how glorious when we see the condition of our hearts. How glorious that we've been justified by faith in Christ, that we are in union with Christ, that we're no longer under condemnation. We've been justified by faith. Beloved, we can celebrate that beautiful reality, right? Nothing that we do as Christians changes our justification before God by faith in Jesus' merits alone. Nothing changes that. But listen to me. Now in our sanctification... In the ongoing process of becoming more and more like Jesus, we need to remember this, 
That if we're going to become more like Christ, we cannot blame our environment that causes us to do evil or to sin. We cannot blame our experiences, how we grew up, our background. We cannot blame what others have done to us. Others have exploited me. Others have abused me. So therefore, that's why I abuse others. And that's why I'm harsh. And I'm this way and I'm that way. Because of everybody who's wronged me. If we understand the source of human depravity, then we understand that the problem is with who? Me, right? Me. Other things might explain or exacerbate my struggles or propensities to particular struggles or sins, but they don't justify them, right? I'm the problem. I need to deal with my heart by the grace of God. The problem is our sinful hearts. Again, James 1.13 and following, let no one say when he's being tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust, evil desire, right? Each of us are responsible for our sin. The problem is in our sinful hearts. And we need the grace of God, beloved, and the Spirit of God's empowering to change, right? Cannot do it on our own. So listen, the reason why you, Christian husband, you don't love your wife, you don't lead your wife spiritually, you don't treat her, you treat her harshly, you lash out at her, you're bitter towards her, you ignore her, you don't show her delight that you love and treasure her. The reason why you act like that is not because she's hard to deal with or because you didn't have examples growing up of a good examples to show you those things. It's your sinful heart. That's the problem. And if you are a Christian and you belong to Christ, then He will give you the grace if you're humble about it and confess your sin to love her and to cherish her, to live with her in an understanding way as Christ loves His church. Amen? He will do that by His grace. The reason why, Christian wife, you're hateful, you're unloving, you're bitter, you're snappy towards your husband, you withhold sex from him as a weapon against him because you're bitter, The reason why you undermine him and disrespect him in front of the little and older kids is not because he's a lousy leader or doesn't measure up to your standard. It's because of your sinful heart. So, if you're a Christian, wife, and you belong to Christ, and Christ has died for you and you've trusted in him, If you are a daughter of the king, he will give you the grace, if you're humble and broken before him, to love and respect your husband, to love him as Christ has loved you. Amen? The reason why you and I are bitter towards others, we talk evil of others, we slander people, we undermine people, is not because they are not measuring up to our expectations or because they are difficult. It's our sinful hearts. Amen? Our sinful hearts. And if we are God's children, beloved, God will grant us the grace to be able to love one another, to forgive one another, to practice biblical reconciliation with one another. God is gracious, isn't he? We are not just saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We are, we are sanctified by grace and empowered by the Spirit of God to become more and more like Jesus as we submit to his Spirit and his Word. Amen? In obedience. The reason why you're engaging in sexual immorality, looking at pornography perhaps, in private, on the internet, or another device, 
The reason why you're in a sinful relationship or you're sexually active perhaps with that person, not being married to them, or you're giving in to homosexuality or giving in to same-sex attraction is not because you have a sexual addiction, because people have exploited you, because you were overly exposed as a kid, or because it's too much of a big temptation to overcome. It's because of your lustful, sinful heart. And so what's the answer? If you are not a child of God, you need to repent of that sin. You need to come to Jesus who will forgive you based upon his atoning sacrifice on the cross. And if you are a believer struggling with any of those areas, listen to me. God is merciful and gracious. He has saved you, not only to deliver you from his punishment, but also to rescue you from enslavement to sin. Be open with the Lord. Confess your sin to him. Open up with somebody who is trusted in your life, who loves you and cares about you, a more mature Christian who is going to open up God's word and is able to walk with you by grace and love and compassion and help you overcome that sin. Stop pretending. Stop walking in hypocrisy, pretending, pretending to be somebody in public while you're somebody else in your heart. There's mercy at the foot of the cross, isn't there, beloved? How many of us haven't experienced that again and again and again in our lives as believers? How many of us, let me see a show of hands, how many of us in here are perfect? Anybody? We even laugh about it, right? It's like, dude, you're, what, what are you asking, right? None of us are perfect. All of us are a work in pro- progress. That is sanctification. It's a process of becoming more and more like Jesus, right? It's a process. But we're not helpless as Christians. We're not helpless But by the grace of God, we are dealing with our hearts on an everyday basis. Listen, we're far from perfect, beloved, but God has begun a good work in us. He's given us forgiveness. He's reconciled us to himself. He's given us new desires. He's given us his Holy Spirit. He's given us his precious word, free access to him through prayer and his church, other people, everything pertaining to life and godliness, spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ over and over again. By grace, beloved, alone, we can be obedient and become like Christ. Amen? May God give us the grace to pursue him and to love him from the heart. So our Lord Jesus teaches us in this passage that we must never succumb to a legalism that is fixated on externalism devoid of a heart made new by Jesus Christ. Think about it. The religious leaders and the crowds during that day had the answer to the problem of their sin before them. So do we, don't we? Who is it? Christ. Christ. Trust him. Trust him if you're not trusting in him this morning. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for the cross of Christ. Thank you that having been justified by faith, we have peace with God with you through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Father, thank you that we can celebrate that and relish in that justification before you, that we are righteous in your sight because you've clothed us in the righteousness of Christ. Thank you, Lord. And yet in this ongoing struggle with our sin and sanctification, Father, help us to be dependent upon you, to be honest with you. You know our hearts. Help us to leverage the relationships that we have in your church as well with those people who love us, who desire to help us to become more and more like Christ. Help us to be honest with our sin with one another, Lord, so that we would grow to be more and more like Jesus. And Father, this morning I also pray that you would deliver us 
from legalism, from ever thinking that it's by our works, by our own merits, that we can find favor with you, Lord. Apart from the righteousness of Christ, we cannot. We fall short of your glory. Help us even as Christians to not succumb to a culture of legalism. Where, Father, we begin to impose man-made standards and traditions and preferences on others and wave those around as spirituality markers. Father, help us to not do that. Help us to exalt Christ. Help us to be about Jesus, to making much of him, much of his person, much of his atoning work. And help us to be diligent in light of what we saw here and we've learned about the condition of the human heart to, Father, not just seek to reform society, but to be preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, that there is a Savior, a Lord, so that people would come to know him. Lord, help us to be disciple-making disciples. Help us to preach Christ. Help us to preach Christ for salvation. Help us to preach Christ for sanctification, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.